Well, we're in Titus, as you know. Uh, I think we can start here. Titus is Paul's, near the end of his life, Paul's address uh, letter to Titus, whom he had discipled. His charge, as you might remember at the very beginning of the book, is bring order to the church in Crete. Now, um, just to kind of summarize where we are, um, how do you bring order? Well, the first thing he does is he says, you train, you get good, well-discipled, well-trained elders. And so he gives the character traits and so get your leadership team together. Then in verses uh, uh, 10 through, which we're just about done with that, 16, he gives the reason for that. Why have a strong, godly, um, spiritually mature leadership team? because there are false teachers in the church, and we have gone through all that. And last week, um, I had spent a little bit of time on verse, well, not a little, quite a bit of time on verse 15, which is a real test of the character of these false teachers. And they, because they're Judaizers, remember I wrote that term in the board, they are taking things that are morally neutral, and turning them into legalistic standards of spirituality. And as Paul consistently does through all of his 13 letters, he roundly condemns that. And he's saying the same thing Jesus says several times in his public ministry. What defiles people is not what you put in your stomach. It's what's in your heart. And um, it's, it's similar to a major theme of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 4.4 4 says, what God is interested in is circumcision of the heart. So even though those outward symbols are important, it's what's going on in the heart that's really important. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying to, to Titus here. And then in verse 16, um, I've called this the test of their conduct. They profess to know God, so there's that verbal belief or testimony, I believe in God. Let's put it very broadly. They're theists. They believe there's a God. But they deny him by their works. So you, let's, the way we sometimes put it, their walk did not match their talk. They say something. This is who I am. This is what I believe, etc. But they don't live it. It's, again, very similar and very parallel to what the Lord said uh, about the Pharisees, for example. He said, when, when they sit on the chair of Moses and teach you the law, you listen to them, but don't do what they do, for they are hypocrites. And so that's, Paul is saying basically the same thing here. They profess to know God, but, but their works, everything they do, their whole life, everything about denies that he exists. And this is the result, the strong, strong language. They are detestable, they're disobedient, and they are unfit for any good work. And so Paul is just saying here to Titus, you, you, you will know them. And Jesus says the same thing, you'll know them by their works. So it just, it's linking that what is so crucial for you and me, even as men, our talk should match our walk. Our walk should match our talk. I studied under a man, he was, and I think I may have mentioned this to you before, but 
he would always try to, to shock us into a major point of scripture. And this is what he said one time. He said, if you're, if you're not serious about your walk with Christ, please don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Hide it. And I mean, he was, you know, it's provocative. That's kind of in your face and it's humorous. But the point he's making is, it is really true. Anybody that says they're, they're, they, they know the Lord, they love the Lord, and so on, and they're not serious about walking with him and loving obedience, it's very, very easy for anyone to say of them they're hypocrite, they're inconsistent. But if, if we're very clear that, you know, I, I belong to the Lord, but I'm a work in progress. Do you ever see that little sign, be patient with me, God is not yet done with me? Mm-hmm. That's just a wonderful little, that, that's a summary of how we should look at our lives. And so you, you have this, this conclusion now that Paul is bringing to this whole section. Why have godly leaders? Because there are a lot of false teachers out there. And they're in the church and so on. All right? Wanted to finish that last week, but we ran out of time. How are you doing? Doing good. I've seen you for a while. Getting on the road. <laughs> I thought you were retired. Yeah, sort of. I'm just kidding. Let's move to chapter two. Let me let me ask you sort of a rhetorical question here. Okay, you're Titus. You've been given the order. Order the church on Crete. It's chaotic. It's a mess. Bring order to it. Organize it. So he's got his leadership team together. He's got the, the, the motivation and, and focus of why godly, spiritually mature leaders are necessary. What would you do next? What are you going to teach? What are you going to preach? How are you going to organize things? And that's what chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2, is all about. And it's really, it's, it's really quite brilliant in some ways. It's almost common sense, but yet at the same time, it's, it's, there's an intentionality about this that just, wow, that's right, that's, that's, that's a good, that's good the way to think about that. The thesis of these verses is sound doctrine produces godly living. That's the thesis of this section. Sound doctrine produces godly living. Now what I'd like to do is read the first several verses so we kind of get the flavor of what he's doing. Now, as you know, in the early the manuscripts, the original autographs, there were no chapter breaks. You know, there weren't any verses. That was added a little bit later on just to make it easy to study and read. So immediately he would have finished the sentence in verse 16, going right in, but as for you. So the but, as you know, is always a word of contrast. So he's contrasting Titus with the false teachers. But as for you... Now listen, I, I'm reading for the ESV. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's our phrase, sound doctrine. Let's work our way back from that command. We've talked about this before. Sound, the Greek word for that means healthy, that which is conducive, conducive to spiritual life, spiritual growth. That's what that Greek word means. It's a big, long Greek word. If you want me to give it to you, I'll give it to you. But it's, it's a very important. Now, let your eye go from verse 1 of chapter 2. Just to the next verse, you'll see the word sound. It's the same word. And let your eye go back up to, to verse 14. Um, or actually, I guess it's verse 13. 
they may sound in truth. And let your eye go back up to verse 9, give instruction sound doctrine. That's sound, sound, sense, exactly the same word. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, Titus, as you are bringing order to the church on Crete, your primary role is teach, speak with what accords or what is fitting or what is appropriate to or what is conducive to sound doctrine. So if, I think I can say this boldly, I hope I don't create any ill feeling. If a local church is not intentionally teaching sound doctrine, it's not doing its job, in my judgment. And I have the reason for that. It's right here. That should be what the church is teaching. Not just superficial, shallow ditties, but sound doctrine. And so he's saying, Titus, you, unlike those false teachers, you speak or teach what is fitting, what is appropriate with sound doctrine. Then what he does is he begins to group, group the people in the local churches, group them according to age. Older men, verse 2. Older women, verse 3. Young women, verse 4, and so on. So as you teach sound doctrine and as you focus on older men, this and older women, etc., this is what sound doctrine produces. This is the goal of sound doctrine. This is the target of sound doctrine. This is the purpose. I'm trying to say the same thing about five different ways. So older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, Christ's uh, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. <clears throat> Why is that so important to focus? And presumably, Paul is choosing older men first to address because of their importance in a local body of believers. Sound doctrine produces godly living. Older men, your life should reflect Christian dignity and a vibrant faith. Last year, in 2017, the Oxford English Dictionary, they do this every year, they chose a word of the year. Two years ago, it was uh, post-truth, which really isn't one word, but it's a hyphenated word. Do any of you know what the step 2017 was? Youthquake. Youthquake. That was the 2017 Oxford English Dictionary word of the year. No, and I... I you know, for some reason I follow those kinds of things, but I was interested in that because I, I, I'd never, maybe some of you, I've never heard that word before. I've never heard that word used. In the article that was, was published, uh, Theresa May, who's the Prime Minister of England, has used it a couple times. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, that's interesting, but I don't usually read her speeches, so that's probably why I missed it. But youthquake means that 
that the Western civilization is so focused on youth, on the young, that whenever they do something, it sets a trend or creates social upheaval. So they're really the ones setting the agenda for culture. And I thought, yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Because we do everything we possibly can to preserve our youth. And the young people do not want to listen to, follow, in any way to pay attention to the old. And the old fight like the Dickens to look like the young. So, I don't know, probably what I'm saying, you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's not how you look at it. But it's, it's a, it's a, Western civilization is obsessed with youth. And so when the New Testament comes along and says, older men, older women, you teach and model the things of God to the young, I can hardly think of anything more countercultural than that. Can you? And so what, what the Apostle Paul is saying, Titus, to bring order to the church on Crete, and there would have been presumably several house churches all over the island, you do that by teaching sound doctrine because that produces godly living. <clears throat> and your goal for the elderly men, I'm going to read these one more time, but the summary is men of Christian dignity and men of vibrant faith. That's what you want to see. And so Christian, I mean, sober-minded, I mean, that's the best way to translate. Some translations just have the word temperate, which is a balanced life of self-control. Um, you, you know, sober, when we hear the word sober in the United States, or I guess anywhere in the world, but when you hear the word sober, you think of sober, that is, the absence of alcohol in your blood. <laughs> That's not necessarily the meaning. It does mean that and can mean that, but it's much broader than that. A sober person is a temperate person who's moderate, balanced, and in control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's that, that kind of person. And you would expect an older gentleman to be like that. Whether they are or not, but you would expect that. So Timothy, uh, excuse me, T Titus is instructed, this, this, is, this is one of your goals as you teach and instruct and equip the older men. Dignified, I just, that's, a, that's just a great translation. But some have translated it, I think NIV translates it, worthy of respect. Is it an axiom of Western civilization 2018 that the elderly are automatically respected? No. Not necessarily at all. Now, in the Asian culture, it is that you're... Wife comes from but that. Less, You've less and less. Huh? Less and less. Is it le okay? I was going to ask you that. Now, what I've been reading that is not so deeply engraved in the culture, but with all that's happening in globalism, that's being affected. Wow. So it, it's just. But again, to to look at worthy of respect. In other words, you you're dignified. You you're worthy of it. It's almost like you've earned it. <laughs> Because of, 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 of who you are. And then self-control, that's, again, pretty self-evident. And then notice what he does here. There's our word sound. All of your translations better have that. If it doesn't, it get another translation. But sound, it's that same word we've been seeing in Titus.
But this is, notice, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sound is modifying all three of those words. So sound, spiritually healthy, spiritually mature in faith. This is a man who walks in faith. In love, it's agape, the selfless or other-centered love, the servant love that you just see all over the New Testament. But isn't it true, especially in Paul's writings, he always puts the triad together. Faith, love, and what's the third one? No, in Paul's writing, faith, hope, I already said sure. hope, faith, love, and hope. So, you know, you expect faith, faith, love, and steadfastness. I mean, it kind of catches you off guard in a sense when it, when it comes to Paul's, uh, Paul's writings. But steadfastness, some translations have endurance. Some translations have perseverance. I don't know because I don't know Paul's mind. I certainly don't know why the Spirit inspired it in this way. But maybe because it's an older man, the focus is now more and more sound, spiritually healthy, spiritually mature in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Because life is coming to an end. It isn't that hope isn't important, but you want to finish well. Steadfastness. Some of you... I don't know if you are familiar with this name, Bob Buford. Uh, he, he just died uh, a short time ago. Only a matter of weeks, as I remember. But anyway, he wrote two books that I used a lot when, when I was in leadership. I gave it to a lot of business. Halftime, which was a, a book, a wonderful book. Um, the argument of that book is, for men, you spend the first half of your life pursuing success. Halftime, start focusing on significance. And that, that was helpful. And I, I like that because it's very biblical. That's a very biblical approach to life. But then he wrote a second book. Uh, he wrote several books, but the other book I'm focusing on, just something called Finishing Well. Now, it was one of his later books in his life. But it's the same, the same theme. But now you want to finish well. Don't give up because you get tired. You might get ill. You, you're, you're, everything that gave you identity and passion, your work, now you're retired. So he's just saying, finish well. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. That's why he uses that word, we can translate steadfast or endurance or perseverance. You want to finish well. Who's that author? The author, Bob Buford, B-U-F-O-R-D. Right. So, uh, part of the steadfastness to me is uh, wise wisdom. When things come up, just hold on, it'll work out. Because you got the younger the younger groups are like, they'll be a lot more uh, worked up and uh, dramatic about it. Where the steadfast will say, uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've, you've been hardened in a sense by the realities of life, and you don't overreact, you're not impulsive, you're steady. You're hanging in there. You're, you're keeping the court. And that is, it, well, let me put it this way. That should be one of the results of wisdom. That's right. That's right. What was the name of this first book that you mentioned? Halftime. 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 Half-done. Half-time. Time. Okay. Yeah, halftime. Uh, I found I had storage area uh, when I was president, and I it hit me two weeks ago. 
you better go down and look at that. There may be some things you want to keep. And I found, I forgot, because I did a lot of seminars using their stuff, and I had several speakers come in. And I whole, had a whole box of uh, halftime and uh, finishing well, and then a book that Gallup put out on their strength. You know, strength finders, you ever do this stuff? And it's for, it was written by uh, two evangelical Christians at the Gallup, so it's written for 501c3s. And so uh, I've given a number of those uh, out in the last couple of weeks. So I thought, well, they're just going to get thrown away. So I decided to retrieve them. And that's what I did. Perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. Because, I mean, I've seen that with my mother. And I did see it with my dad, although my dad was so sick those last um, seven, eight months of his life. But it's... It is so easy to almost just give up, you know, and you're sick or you're tired, just tired of life, and it's just keep hanging in there. Peggy is really struggling with her mother in that area because her mother's just given up. She really has. She's in a care facility. She's in hospice. She's very... And it's just, you know, the the joy of living is gone because you're just waiting now to go home. I don't mean to put that so crassly, but that's almost... And all Paul is saying is, men, you who are older, these are the virtues that sound doctrine produces, because you have the eternal perspective now on things. Life, its virtues, should be characterized by a sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled life. It's a focus on things that are eternally significant. Faith, Love and in perseverance, hanging in there, finishing well, enduring, not giving up. And those kinds of qualities, and, and Glenn used that word, and that's the correct word, those kinds of qualities also accompany what is a wise life, what a wise life looks like. So are these qualities to be pursued or are they somehow nat- the natural outcomes of uh, wise and godly living? Well, I think or it's both and. It's both and. It's, it's, they are to be pursued, but they are, they are the virtues that will result from a God-centered, God-controlled life that is a result of sound doctrinal teaching. You really understand who God is, and you really understand his plan, and you really understand who you are. And that enables you, in a sense, to develop and pursue these kinds of virtues. Because, the well, you we've talked about that many times in this class. The Christian life is not a passive life. It's very active. You're very focused and goal-centered, but those come from the Word of God, not just from you know Ellen DeGeneres or Dr. Oz or somebody like that. They come from Scripture. And so what Paul is doing here to Titus is, Titus, in teaching sound doctrine for older men, here are the kind of things you want to make sure they're focusing on. Does the Word of God have things, does the Word of God have things to say about these? Yeah, they're all over the place. <laughs> Everywhere, all, by negative example or by positive teaching, they are all over the place. And so that's, and, and the other thing is, you're going to see this, I don't think we'll get to this this week, but um, younger men are to learn from older men how to live the Christian life. 
How's that going in 2018? It's, it's hard. It's hard to see that, isn't it? I don't think the church does a very good job putting the two generations together. There's just not a lot of opportunity. You know, like, we shouldn't have high schoolers here. Something like that. You know? I'm, I'm blessed that I have a father-in-law that's been a believer his entire life. And, you know, I, I really try to hang up every word he says. Mm. He doesn't say much. So that's another problem. On the older people's side, yeah. My father used to talk a lot. So. Yeah, yeah. But you can watch what he did. Watch how he makes decisions. Watch the values that he has. You can see those manifested decisions he makes. Dave, you've hit on something that um, can I go down this bunny trail? Mm-hmm. Is, is all right because I mean I don't want to. But Dave has hit on something that's a very strong conviction of mine. Um, The United States of America as a culture invented adolescence as a stage of development. Do you know what I mean by that sentence? You know, And it was really after World War II. Uh, we really kind of focused on that is a separate stage of development of the human. From you know, child to adult, there's kind of an intermediary stage there. And, that, and we gave that that stage, adolescence, and now we subdivide that into parts too. But, and so what the church did is the church said, okay, that's, that's a good idea. That's, that's a good observation. So let's start to develop a whole ministry focused on just the adolescent. And that led to a whole division of called youth ministry. And you know, the, the result of that, and it probably reaches its peak in 1990s and early 2000s, is you, you, the youth ministry and the whole drive for youth ministry was really create, creating a parachurch. Here's the main church, and then here's the youth church. <laughs> and they meet, they do their own thing, they go on ski trips, and go, you know, and, all, and then they do a missions trip in the summer and all that. But rarely do those two ever connect. And so, and, and that the, the impact of that then, Christian Smith is a sociologist at the Notre Dame now, has really done some fantastic, he's written three books on this. But he's really said, the youth ministry model in North America has failed. Because these kids then, you know, they're, they're used to this, this youth ministry, it's lots of fun and lots of excitement and lots of energy. Oh, and by the way, let's have a devotional now. You know, that kind of, not, that's cynical. But often that is the case. And then they go off to college and they're not well-trained and they're not well-equipped. And they get into college, unless you know you go to a faith-based, Christ-centered college. But you go, you go to a typical college university and just mowed down. It, it, all your worldview issues, assumptions are all challenged, because that's naturally just what happens. And all of a sudden, you start to have lots and lots and lots of doubts. And they, uh, there have been a number of studies on this, too, that for Christian kids that go to a non-faith-based school, by the end of the first semester, they're not going to church regularly. By the end of the second semester, in other words, the freshman year, they're hardly going to church at all. As they get into their second semester and fourth semester, they're beginning to have serious doubts. By the time they start their fourth, fifth, uh, fourth, fifth semester, junior year, most of them no longer would call themselves Christians. Doesn't mean they're not religious, doesn't mean, <coughs> but they're just, and that's where he came up And What are they? He says, my research shows me they're moralistic, therapeutic deists. Mm-hmm. That's their view of God. 
And it's because, and then what happens is they grow up and they get, and then they get married or sometimes they just cohabit, but they start having children. And all of a sudden they say, do I want to raise my children without any contact or any exposure to God? And about 55% of them make the decision, no, I really don't. So they go back to church and the church doesn't know what to do with them. In the sense that, I mean, you know, they'll go to church, but I mean, they really don't exactly, cause they, how do we bring them back in? Because they're, they're kind of a typical, they're anti-institutional, they don't like institutions, and so on. And so it's, just, it's a real conundrum for the church. And uh, that's, at my church, we, I, my pastor asked me to form a task force, and we took a look at the whole youth ministry model, and we decided our youth ministry model is going to be very different. And we're not, it's not original with us, or a number really trying to do this, which much greater focus, not, it's not that you're avoiding the fun, but a much greater focus on very, very focused doctrinal teaching to equip these kids for life. So that if they go to a, a non-faith-based school, they're not going to be mowed over. No, this is what I believe. I've used a... a uh, a book that written by a, a man, I think I mentioned it here, it's called Truth Matters. It's, it's an absolutely wonderful book. It is written for college students. And it is written to prepare them for what they're going to hear and what they're going to be exposed to. How do I know the Bible's true? How do, how do I really know? Because my professor is going to stand up. The Bible is just like the Gilgamesh epic and all of the other ancient pieces of literature. It's filled with myth. None of it's true. And Dr. Bach and others, who are three men who wrote it, they say, no, you can, make, you can make the apologetic for Scripture. It's unlike any other book coming out of the ancient world. And I mean other things. So I think that's one of the... It, it is time for us to kind of start thinking again, how do you organize a local church? And, and Paul is organizing around age groups. Uh, among other ways to think about it. So it's just kind of, a, it's an interesting dynamic that we have lost to a great extent, or to some extent, or maybe to an enormous extent, <laughs> when it comes to how we're doing church in, in some of our local communities. Joel? I was just going to go further down the bunny trail. I don't know if you're familiar with a book called Sticky Faith but it's kind of written to also kind of combat or address that issue. And one of the main premises is, you know, how do you combat yes. what you're talking yes. about? And, and one of the points is that, you know, there's typically in youth ministry, they talk about a one to five ratio, mm. you know, one leader for five youth. And what the author is suggesting is that should be actually five to one. In other words, one student should have five godly adults in their life speaking like. in... Yeah. You know, so that could be a parent, that could be a youth leader, mm-hmm. that could be someone in a prayer group, whatever. But mm-hmm. kind of, you know, again, turn the tables to yes. like, so that it's, there's more input and interaction, as Dave was suggesting. Exactly. Mature, godly, older. And the and and the the and the focus on in youth ministry, you're not only working with the student, you're also working with the parents. The way we've designed our model, our youth leader is going to spend a third of his time with parents and a third of his time with students and a third of his time in the other parts of his ministry. 
That's a very unique way to think about it. But it is. So there's like multiple contexts. But I mean, that is not an easy thing to put together. Because you are, you are committing on the front end to an enormous amount of time and investment in the lives of people. And this person, more correctly, really, these people that are going to be involved have to, we, we call our youth ministry SALT, Students Active in Living Transformation. And it, it's, it requires an enormous amount of interpersonal relationship skills and patience because, as you know, adolescence is a disease. I mean, it really is. It is a disease. And the, they survive it. Parents, you're supposed to laugh at this. Nobody's laughing. You're not getting it. <laughs> but anyway. So I'd like to point out that, I mean, most of the discussion here has been about older men and youth. But this doesn't say youth. It says younger men. That's right. And, I mean, I would put those maybe in the Bob Buford halftime better. And these are people who have kind of gone through the youth phase and starting to live their life. And they're in probably leadership roles in their home, and they got other things. And, I mean, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to invest in the lives of people in that stage in life as well. And I, for example, I mentor an 18-year-old, or he's actually 19 now, but he's completed college already. And I also lead a, a men's group of men who are in their 40s. Mm. And they both have different needs, Absolutely. but um, they're both <laughs> trying to mature spiritually wherever they are. Sure. So, I mean, I, I don't know if that's worth thinking about or not, but the younger men here doesn't necessarily mean youth to me. Well, youth <clears throat> is important, I'm saying that. but Right. The, um, the principle of Scripture, and again, Glenn used that word, the principle of Scripture is... Older men, women have wisdom to share with the young. Now, young can be teenagers, young adults, mid forties. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's the principle. You see a lot in the wisdom literature about what we would call adolescence uh, and so on. But when when I when we look at and this, I should have dealt with it in this way. When when we see the word teach. Um, when we see the word um, train, which is coming up here with older women, both of those words, and even the word speak, which is laleo in Greek, this is the daskalae, this is a very long Greek word. How do you accomplish those three, those two things? Whether you're speaking or teaching or training, you do it in a formal sense of instruction. I mean, that can be you know, not necessarily a class with a PowerPoint and slide, that's not, I mean, can mean that for 2018, but instruction is essentially you're talking about your faith. That's what speak means, you're talking about your faith. But it's much more than that. Let's use a word that's not in the New Testament, but a word that is, is reflecting a lot of terms in the New Testament. We call it modeling. And that's your walk. I mean, here is talk, what you say and what you speak. And I've learned in my life, whether you're speaking to a 40-year-old or a uh, a 19-year-old, I've learned in my life that it's best for me to not respond impulsively to things. I mean, that's just 
That's a wise sentence. But you learn that in life, because often when you respond impulsively, you make an unwise decision. You know, to, to just always respond to things impulsively, oh my goodness, that's, that is not a wise way to live your life, because you rarely can have discernment with that, which is insight into the consequences of your, of your, of your actions. And so when, when the scriptures are using these terms, it's both the talk, whether it's just conversation or sharing around a cup of coffee or whatever, but it's also what they see it in you. And I'm pretty sure, Jim, and some of those guys you're talking about that you're working with, they're, they're not only hearing you talk, they're seeing that Jim lives this. They're watching. This is serious to Jim. I mean, that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Um, whatever you see, hear, or observe in me, do it. Would you ever say that to anybody? Do you want to know how to pull off the Christian life? Follow me around. I'll show you how to do it. He didn't even use an accept clause. <laughs> That's right. Except hey, but that, that is precisely that is precisely what people are doing. They're they're watching you. How's he going to respond to that? And you know, children particularly, children pick out instantly. They pick out inconsistency. <laughs> Instantly, and then they have the audacity to tell you about it, <laughs> Dad. You just, <laughs> but last night you said, <laughs> and then you crawled under the table with conviction. But it's just, Paul is Paul is saying something to Titus. Sound doctrine produces godly living, and lived out doctrine is what transforms people, is what transforms culture, is what transforms the world. Our church has buck snorts. Oh my goodness, I've never heard that. <laughs> I think it's unique to our church, but uh, women have bridal showers. We have a dinner for the men, and boys, every males, all get together. When someone's get, uh, getting married, they have the groom, and they go around, especially the older men, words of wisdom. Oh well, yeah, and life, uh, life experiences, and and uh, but the the young men, the kids growing up, hear this every time somebody's getting married. Wow, we have this dinner, and we have these words of knowledge. Buck this snort is that what you? Buck snort. <laughs> I've never ever heard that. That is really that is really that's terrific. That's terrific. Well, that's good. Um, I think we're. You know our questions, discussion, and, and various illustration examples. Um, it's important to take this stuff seriously. It really is. Number two, well, number two in terms of what he's addressing: older women. Now, ESV does this correctly, I, I, I think. Likewise, in other words, as you teach and instruct sound doctrine, which is the God of the also with older women. Are to, be, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Let me stop with those three. Now each one, the, the word reverent, that's how the ESV translates. It's a very difficult word to translate. Because you, you say, are to be reverent. Amen, yes. That sounds so good, yes. But what in the world does that mean, to be reverent? <laughs> the Greek word actually means priest-like in how they live their lives. Again, that doesn't that doesn't help, perhaps, but reverent in behavior, conscious, intentional, 
willful decisions about how you're going to behave, how you're going to live your life. When you hear the word reverent, what he does next is illustrates what this can look like, and he chooses just two examples. Not slanderers, which um, can be in the category or circle of words that involves gossip. Now, again, I'm not trying to be gender-specific here in particular sins or, or failures or lack of virtues, but that often is the case where gossiping can lead to slandering, you know, where you're defaming someone's character or whatever, and then not slaves to much wine. That's literally, it's exactly what it means. But again, it's giving that focus to self-control. So he's choosing things that are not terribly difficult, but notice what he says next at the end of verse 3. They are to teach what is good. And the word teach involves these two things, the the formal and the informal. The formal instruction and the modeling. That's that's what didaskale means. And so he's he's saying this, this conscious, willful, intentional teaching what is noble, what is attractive, by example... Because you don't only say the words, talk the words, you live it. In other words, walk and talk should always, or at least ideally, should match match up. And then he transitions to verse 4, the reason for that. And so, again, the, the ESV translates it, and so train, that's a very kind of long Greek word, but translated train. I like to think of uh, safranidzo, it's the Greek word there, to mean also to equip. Because training, training is often used of, of a term that involves skills. It's not just instruction, you know, where you're, you're, you're giving people intellectual knowledge and understanding of philosophy or history or something like that. But Safranidzo has the idea of equipping, training and equipping in skills. Training and equipping for what? To love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled. To be pure. And oh goodness, this would be very incendiary today. Working at home. (laughs) Kind and submissive to their husbands. Question. Oh, please. Is this a call from that it's outside of the family unit. So Absolutely. A, a word we use today would fit here perfectly, the mentoring, the mentoring relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm just going to go down a bunny trouble, but I won't. So to, to train, let's, let's think about this for a minute. Why focus on these virtues? Love your husband, your children, self-control, pure, work at home. Why focus on those? It's a family environment. Say it again, please. Women are called to nurture the marriage. All right, and, and the home, and children, and so on. The family environment is extremely critical to yeah. spiritual development and yeah. mature thinking and... Very much so. Priorities and values and all Very that. much so. 
very much so. And so um, we can infer that these virtues are not natural. For anyone or the people in Crete? Oh, I would broaden it to anyone in the human race. Anyone in the human race. In other words, that virtuous living is, from the biblical perspective, spirit-empowered and spiritually energized, but it's also caught and modeled. Those two go together. And so if this is one of the real, if, if I can be rather bold, but I think it, 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 it'll make sense to you. This is one of the real, real challenges right now in the African-American culture. This is one of the real challenges in the, the growing lower class of the white in the South and the Appalachian regions and so on. I'm trying not to stereotype, but that's often, that is often the case because there is not this good, solid, strong, intentional mentoring. One of my dear friends is a pastor of a large African-American church North Omaha. Will say, he said, I don't know how many times he said that to me, Jim, the hardest problem for my people is they have no hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And just think about that. that to me, that was an insightful comment. There's no hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Well, that's it. I mean, it just... It, it, and so if children are raised in that kind of an environment, and uh, you know, the explanation for this and why this has happened and so on is all rooted in history, but that's where we are now. And, and it's, it's growing. It is, not, it is growing in lots of other segments of American civilization. It's not just the African-American community. As a matter of fact, the strongest family-oriented part of our civilization is Hispanic. The strongest commitment to family is in the Hispanic community. And it's, it's just fascinating as you watch all of these things. So Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus is being instructed by, by, by Paul. As you teach sound doctrine, which is the godly living, older women should be helping to equip younger women to see what is virtuous for them to do for the sake of the family, Jim said, and for the sake of the larger society, to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled. That's the same phrase that we saw earlier. To be pure, and that's, that's actually just what it means, pure, but it has the whole idea of, of very much uh, of, you know, a godly purity that focuses on the kinds of things that you see in the virtues of the New Testament. And then very controversial in 2018, but working at home, because uh, it certainly was in the ancient world and up until fairly recently, that was the primary <clears throat> sphere in which the woman worked. Right? You understand what I mean by that? And so that's what he's saying. Kind can be translated gentle and considerate. And then the bombshell. Submissive to their own husbands. And of all the virtues that are itemized out there, that is the one that is most difficult. 
So let me, uh, in one sense, uh, be very blunt. I'm awfully thankful that there aren't any gals in this group today. Because what we just went through, but it is, I mean, each one of these, each one of these is okay, I got it, except working at home and submission. Those two are just really difficult to process and understand. But I want to talk a little bit about the submissive idea. Would that be all right? Do you have any questions or comments about any of these other virtues that are itemized out here, Fred? Well, you know, the, the working at home, even though even though a woman may work outside of the home, there's still organizational stuff in the home that is done that, that models the children. You know, you, there, there's a time that we eat, we eat together, we have time for homework, we limit the amount of time yeah. for the two. Yeah. But those, that, that's work at home. Yeah. So I, it doesn't just mean barefoot and pregnant. I keep them, you yeah. know, that old horrible sl- yeah. slanderous <laughs> slogan. But you're, you're right. You're, you're right. Now, um, do you want to talk about this submissive idea? Or should we just say, well, that's a good biblical word. Move on. <laughs> Joe? Before you do, is there a little bunny trail on why that is in reference to younger women as opposed to older women? Well, or at least the way it is written here. Well, I think the the the, the reasonable answer to that, I think, uh, Joe, is that you 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 have older women who you know have been married for quite a long time, younger women who are just beginning that part of their life, and it's not yeah, this is not natural. This is not the natural response of a gal. I mean, of I mean, of anybody, but it's just natural. Uh, it's it's unnatural, I should say. So what you what you want to do, t- t- uh, Titus, Paul is saying, is have the older women who walked with the Lord for a while now to help equip younger women for what this is going to mean for them, what this is going to look like, what this is going to work itself out to be in your life. This is just a continuation of. of- Paul telling Titus to select your ambassadors, whether they're male or female. We want the older ones that you know, have, to, have done the walk and the talk, and, and they can model to the, to the younger ones. I guess I'm looking at the English here, and it's all coming from the older women. Right? So the working at home is, is nothing more than a continuation of what. The older women are already doing anyway. Right. It's giving them the life skills of how to do that going forward from the day in there, showing them the model. Yeah. And showing them how it, it is, it, again, right. is walking the walk, which is what this chapter is about. Right. It's about role modeling and instruction. So I, I, I don't think older women are excluded. I think it's just they're called to show the younger women how to do it. I'd like to do something here that I don't always do, but I have the luxury of doing it here because you gave me permission and you said we're not in the right times. So when you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that is a crucial turning point in the book of Ephesians. 
And what Paul does is he says, my instruction to you is to be filled and literally to be contrived. He says, do not be filled with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the idea is being controlled. In Ephesus, you would see a person walking down the street and stumbling and falling. They're being controlled by an alcoholic beverage. Don't be like that. Be under the control of the Spirit. That is a daily, there's nothing super spiritual or mystical about it. It's just a conscious dependence on the Spirit. You're praying, asking Him, etc. And what he does, it's quite instructive. He said that impacts your worship. I'm just looking at the rest of the book. It goes the whole way through the end of chapter 6. It affects your worship. It affects your interpersonal relationship skills. It affects your praying. And then he says... It affects the husband-wife relationship. It affects parent-child relationship, chapter 6. It affects the workplace. And then, in chapter 6, verse 10, so I'm going to itemize out very specifically, it affects how you approach spiritual warfare. Because you are in a battle for the heart, soul, and mind of you. It's a spiritual war. We don't fight against flesh and bones, but against the spiritual forces and powers in the heavenly places. It's against Satan and so on. So to be under the control of the Spirit is necessary for all this. But this is what Titus is being instructed on by Paul right now, right here. This stuff. This stuff. Right here. And this stuff. Right here. And this, I mean, all of these things are intersected. So all of these are supernatural. All of these. You cannot do this on your own. It's supernatural. All of this stuff. Okay? Now, by zeroing in on this, which is what he's doing in... Can I turn this? Well, I'm going to turn it whether you want me to or not. I shouldn't have been so crass there. But I looked at my watch and I only had five minutes. So, well, all pieces. So I'm going to draw it this. We did this when we were in First Peter three. I gave you a handout, but I don't have that with me, so I'm going to do it this way. And what Paul is doing, okay, on the other side in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 through 34, he says, okay, husband, relationship with God. Literally in that passage, it's Jesus Christ. Wife, your relationship with God. But what is this, if you both have a relationship based on faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a given. How does it affect your relationship here? So what are your what is the role of the husband? Well, the role of the husband is to serve serve his wife as a servant leader and to love his wife. And in both cases, as Christ loved the church. Jesus is the head of the church, you be head of the home. He's a servant, other-centered leader. So should you. And you're to agape your wife, love your wife, in exactly the same way that Christ loves his church. Then the wife, her responsibility is all summed up in this word submission. 
as a noun or submissive, adjective, or to submit as a verb or whatever. But submission. If he is serving you as the leader of the home and loving you, then submission means you have that, that, um, that inclination to follow and that, that, that demeanor of life to yield to that kind of leadership. The, the demeanor of, of yielding and that inclination to follow the servant leadership of your home. Because God assigns primary responsibility. This is very, very difficult in 2018 to teach this, but I, I can show it. There are four reasons for it. The primary responsibility of the husband. So if things break down in the home, whom does God hold responsible? husband. And so therefore coming out of submission is just to nurture, to nurture, this is so hard to say this in 2000, but to nurture this responsible role that your husband has. And you can see the problem or the challenge seemingly insurmountable if the husband doesn't know Christ. Or what if the husband is in rebellion against Christ at a particularly down point in his life? Or if the wife doesn't do Christ. Well, you, well, yeah, I mean, that's obviously, but I'm dealing mainly with this term submission here, but you, I mean, you're right. So you, you have that, you have that, uh, to get the full sense of everything that Paul is saying here to Titus, you have to understand all this. Because these things are not natural. What I tried to show you, because in teaching in Ephesians, it all flows out of the command, be under the Spirit's control, and it will affect all of this in your life. So the inference would be, or the corollary would be, if I don't submit to the Spirit and allow Him to control my life, then all of these other things will be affected negatively, or at least not in, in the complete way the Lord wants to see it in our life. So you're starting to get what I want you to get is that what Paul is saying here is sound doctrine produces godly living, but it's the call to a supernatural way to live. Because none of these virtues that are being discussed here are necessarily natural to us. We have to learn them. We have to practice them. And we have to allow the Lord to transform us into those areas. And it takes time. The, the, the New Testament word for all of this is sanctification. Now, I taught you a tiny bit of doctrine. I've just summarized two whole chapters of the book of Ephesians, all coming out of one word. But it's, it's, it's trying to get at the heart of this disposition to yield, this inclination to follow. That's what submission means. And don't forget, the Christian is called to a life of submission, men and women. Submit to God, submit to governing authorities, submit to your church leaders, submit to one another. They're all, that word submit is used in all those places throughout the scriptures. So it isn't just the wife who's called to a life of submission. You and I are called to a life of submission. All right? Matt, I know we don't need volunteers. <laughs> I'm not going to be specific. There is a certain religion that the name is known for 
uh, world conquest through submission. Sure. It's, so that makes recognizing God's call to us as Christians to submit very difficult when it comes to our defense of Christianity in this country or anywhere else that's affected by Staying away from all the controversy. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah, it is a challenge. Now, can I just do one thing? We'll do. We'll hit this next week. But just note at the end of verse five, all this is a purpose clause that the word of God may not be reviled. So what Paul is saying to Titus is the word of God's at stake here, Titus. People can easily revile it. Revile is a very strong word, but I just we'll start with that next week. That's very intriguing that he adds that purpose clause there. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you uh, for our time today. What a challenge! Titus was given the responsibility of bringing order to the churches on Crete. He puts his leadership teams together. First half of chapter one, he defines the reason for that because there are false teachers in the church and you have got to expose them and silence them because their conduct and their their character are at stake here. And now, Titus, you, you don't be like them. You teach and equip and train using sound doctrine where it produces godly living, all the different groups in the churches. To me, that's a brilliant common sense way to not only formally teach and instruct, but to live and to model so that the walk is always matching the talk. And that's the struggle we all have. But I think when there's humility, when there's an acceptance and there's patience, which is how you always deal with us, Lord, we are trusting that uh, we can be the kind of men you want us to be, both in how we live our lives, but also in, in what, we, what we do in modeling, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Uh, people are watching us. Thank you for many of the men here around the table that are involved in some of this teaching or mentoring. Jim mentioned mentoring a, a number of young men, sometimes young meaning in their 40s or whatever. That's a, a good investment of time, investing in other people's lives. That always bears the kind of fruit that really Paul is talking about here as he counsels Titus. So, Lord, as we go now, we ask you to dismiss us with your blessing. Enable and encourage us to be filled with your spirit, to be under your spirit's control, so that we might represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you guys next week.